We'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, over the course of history, names have very often uh, been a descriptor descriptor of some kind of uh, aspirational characteristic uh, for the one being named that name. Uh, In contemporary times, though, we usually don't approach names that way. We usually just pick names that we like and we hope that the translation or the meaning of that name is of great significance somewhere. Uh, My name, Justin, Uh, has been historically uh, defined or means uh, full of justice, uh, fair or righteous. Uh, And I would like to think that maybe my parents had that in mind uh, when they named me. However, uh, when you look up the most popular names on the year that I was born, it just happened to be in like the top 10. So I don't think that was the reason. It was just a trendy name at the time. Uh, My oldest daughter, uh, her name is Aubrey, and her name has two definitions. Uh, the first definition that, uh, that she has, Aubrey means noble, so that's good. Uh, there is also another very common definition for that name uh, that I can tell you is not the reason why we initially had uh, picked that name, but that second definition, <laughs> it means elf ruler or ruler of elves. Um, as Lord of the Rings fans, we've, been, we've had fun with that over the years. Uh, but in the Bible... Names had intentional, purposeful meaning. So, for example, Daniel means God is my judge. David means beloved. Isaiah means the salvation of God. John means God is gracious. Mary, I love this, means rebellion. And I love that since Mary, as as some call her the, the second Eve, she rebels against the forces of sin and darkness that comes by, of course, being the mother of our Savior, our Redeemer. But the point being is that names are given, and they're given uh, for aspirational purposes, characteristics that we desire to see in the life of our children, or that mean something greater. And in all of the cases in the Bible, names always pointed to character, the character or the nature of God himself. Almost always, it was an opportunity to see the character and nature of God. Now, we've been in a series that we've called, He Shall Be Called which has been a look at the names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9. These names were ascribed to him 700 plus years before he was born, and they give a glimpse of the character and nature of Jesus. And we have said that uh, throughout this entire section of Isaiah, it's painting for us a picture of a king, a king who will come to usher in a kingdom unlike any other kingdom, for it will be a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom where righteousness and justice prevail. And the names that have been describing this king have again pointed us to the character of that king and his kingdom, wonderful counselor, mighty God. And today, we're going to take a look at everlasting father. Now, um, if you've been with us, we have consistently come back to the notion that Advent, the season that we are in, 
starts in the dark. That Advent is for those who have a troubled soul, that we can only truly celebrate Advent well if we understand the longing and the trouble that we have deep within us. Because Advent is our opportunity to remember not only that Jesus has come, but to also join with those who were before Jesus in a longing for the coming of the Messiah. For we look to a day forward when Christ will again return. And today, as we consider this next name of Jesus, I think this name in particular helps us see how desperately we long for this coming king. And of course, that name being Everlasting Father, it is a curious name, given that it is talking about Jesus. But what we'll see is that this name provides us a glimpse of his character, the nature of one, the one that we celebrate this time of year, the one who we long for. And so to do this, let's consider Jesus as everlasting. Let's consider Jesus as a father. Let's consider Jesus as your everlasting father. All right, so first, everlasting. Uh, the first thing we have to address is that there could be some immediate confusion about this title Father being given to Jesus. Specifically, uh, Christian theology, the Bible teaches uh, something very clear. What Deuteronomy 6.4 uh, calls what's, what is known as the, the Shema, that God is one. Right? That there is one true and living God. And yet, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see this from the very beginning of the creation narrative in Genesis 1, where God says, let us create. There's this community within the Godhead. And then we again see it. Uh, they see this trinity clearly at Jesus' baptism. When you have the Father who speaks to the Son and the Spirit who descends like a dove, you've got these three distinct persons, all of whom are one God. Now, I can't possibly unpack the full teaching of the Trinity today, nor, if I could, could we ever fully grasp it. Of course, that's beyond our, our ability to fully comprehend. However, what we need to start with is understanding that the persons of the Trinity are all equal in power and rule as one, and yet they are distinct. This was actually um, a debated point, especially in the third century, around a heresy that was known as Sabellianism, or modalism, which denied the distinct and coexisting persons of the divine nature. Uh, and so for those of you who maybe grew up in the church, uh, especially if you grew up in places with very well-intentioned teachers, uh, one example of kind of a soft Sabellianism uh, was an attempt to explain the Trinity by using the example of water. Maybe you've heard this before. As the analogy goes, God is like water. Right? He is liquid, he is gas, he is solid, but in the end, he's all still the same. That's actually a, a bit of a soft sabellianism, a soft modalism, because it is implicitly stating that God does not coexist at the same time as three different persons. Instead, he takes different forms over different times. And the reason why I point this out is because some people push it even further into a harder sabellianism, which says that God revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament. He reveals himself as the Son in the New Testament, and then he reveals himself as the Spirit from, the, from Pentecost onward. And I bring this up because that's completely antithetical to biblical teaching. And I know that for some, 
you've, I've completely lost you. You have no idea what I'm talking about, and forgive me. But for those who know what I'm talking about, it's important just to note that if we do come across those who teach this idea of God taking different modes, different shapes at different times, uh, know that that is not orthodox Christian understanding of the Godhead. But I'm saying this because it seems as though Isaiah is really confused. It seems as though he's confusing the first person of the Trinity with the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus, the one of whom he writes. However, this is not at all what's happening. Because as we've said, these names, like all other biblical names, they're describing the character of Jesus. They are describing the kind of king he will be and that he is. And so he is everlasting and he is like a father and this everlasting idea is important. It's important to know that one of the characteristics of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is that he shares with both the Father and the Spirit is the eternality aspect. If you remember, in, uh, in case we weren't clear, in Matthew 4, Matthew makes clear that Isaiah 9 is prophesying about Jesus. This term points us to the fact that Jesus is eternal and that his kingdom will never pass away. And so Isaiah is making clear that this king, Jesus, is God. For who is the king over the eternal and the everlasting other than God? He is reminding us of what Revelation 1 tells us about him, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. For he is the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. So from, for, uh, this is for, uh, for another day, but let it suffice to say for now, but the biblical teaching is that Jesus, who was a man, is also fully God. He is everlasting. But the second piece, then, what does it then mean for Jesus to be a father, to be like a father? Again, not in the sense of being the first person of the Trinity, but like a father to children. Now, when I think about the different analogies of God, of all the analogies that Scripture uses to describe God, I know that Father can be a pretty complicated one for us because that title, for many, comes with a lot of baggage. The reason being, of course, is that we all have fathers uh, and we all have, as we all, have, as a result, have a tendency to see God through the lens of our earthly fathers. And all of our earthly fathers are flawed and broken and inconsistent and hypocritical and imperfect. All of them. Now, as a father, uh, and I've, I've been one for a while now, uh, I've had to come to the realization that, believe it or not, I am a flawed and imperfect father. Uh, for fathers here, and I, first I'll broaden this out to mothers as well, because I think parenting generally, you can identify with this. The question is not going to be, if you will fail your children. It's not an if I will do something that will one day give them fodder for conversation in their future counseling sessions. It's not an if. Rather, it's a how. How will I fail my kids? How will I give them fodder for future counseling sessions? It's important to note because second only to my wife, or to the Lord and my wife, my daughters, I love more than anything else on the planet, and I find it my, one of my primary duties uh, and joys in life to ensure that they're safe and cared for and provided for and loved, and I, without hesitancy, would give my life for them. And yet, even though all that is true, because I am flawed and I am imperfect, I will fail them. 
It's not an if, it's a how. And if your parents in the room, the longer you're a parent, the more you realize that that's true. Fellow parents, we all share that story. And just as a bit of a side note, because this is not a whole thing on parenting today, but knowing that about yourself as a parent, it ought to lead us to lead our families with grace and humility and a willingness to ask for forgiveness because we are broken, fallen people. Side note. But with that said, more importantly than us seeing God or seeing our, our fathers as broken people, seeing God as our father is actually an important way of understanding that all that we desire from our earthly fathers is actually embodied fully in God himself. And as a result, the Bible speaks of God as father. And we then need to resist projecting our understanding of fathers onto our heavenly father and see him rightly, see him for who he is as a father. Because when we speak of God as our father, when we think about Jesus, our king, as being described as a father, we need to see him in light of what scripture says about the kind of father that he is. Now, for some, your father is harsh. And maybe you dreaded being around him because he was prone to anger or outbursts or hot-tempered. Life was nothing more than constantly feeling like you were walking on eggshells with him. And so now when you think about God as father, you see him in the same way. And as a result, you don't find comfort in God. Rather, maybe you fear God. And if that's you, I want you to hear the words of Psalm 103 that give us a glimpse of God as father. The psalm says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, that he's slow to anger that he's abounding in love. He's not a God who flies off the handle, but rather is patient and kind, slow to anger, who desires to lavish the riches of his love on you. For some, your father was unimpressed. Nothing was ever good enough for him. You've spent your entire life trying to please him and to make him proud of you and to show that you are good enough. And so when you think about God as father, all you can think of is that you better strive and you better work hard for him in order to please him and make him proud of you and to produce something of value. And that desire to constantly produce is a burden on you that will never allow you to fully rest. And if that's you, I want you to hear the words of Psalm 147 that tells us that the Lord delights in those who fear him who put their hope in their unfailing lover. Psalm 149 that tells us that the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he adorns the humble with salvation, meaning that when we lay down our striving and we instead trust and rest in him for our salvation and we trust and rest in Jesus, in what he has done on our behalf, the Lord delights in us, takes pleasure in us, not by anything that we contribute, but solely by our trust and faith in him. For some, maybe your father was a liar and manipulator who could not be trusted. And as a result, you do not feel like you can trust God. But I want you to hear the words of Hebrews 6 that tell us that it's impossible for God to lie. What he says he will do, he will do. Who he says he is, he is, period. For some, maybe your father was um, ju around just enough that you remember him, but he left. 
And so as a result, you never really knew him. For some, maybe your father abandoned you completely and you've never known him. And so when you think about God, you don't think you can fully trust him because you don't think he'll actually be there when you need him. Because you've never experienced a father who was there for you. And if that's the case, I want you to hear the words of Deuteronomy 31 and Hebrews 13 where God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I want you to hear the words of Psalm 118 that the Lord is my helper, so I will not be afraid. God is the fullest expression of everything good about our earthly fathers, and he is the fulfillment of everything that your father lacked. This is the character of our king of our everlasting Father, Jesus. So what then does it mean for him to be your everlasting Father right now? How do we go about experiencing that truth? Well, I've said this, and I'm going to say this again. We've said this over and over again. This season of Advent, which is a season of remembrance, it's a season of longing, it starts in the dark. It starts for those with a longing, with a troubled soul, It is for those who know that Jesus proves the character of God and provides hope that we will experience the depths of his love in its fullest when he one day comes to make all things new. And this is what I want you to consider as we think about Jesus as our everlasting father. I want you to think about um, a concept in uh, Christian theology known as the already not yet. The already not yet is essentially... um, our understanding of how God is working, that God has done certain things already, and yet our experience of those accomplishments we don't yet fully have, that one day we will experience them in its fullest. The already not yet helps us understand what God has done while also having hope that we will experience it fully. And that is actually what Advent's all about. Our season of Advent is an already not yet push and pull. The already is that our king has come, he has brought uh, with him his kingdom, and this is what we celebrate each year. It's the coming of Jesus, the arrival of the one that the people of God longed for for generations. And their hope was that one day he would come and that God would accomplish all that he promised. The thing that they had been uh, longing for for generations was revealed in the Messiah. This Messiah came and he lived a perfect life. He died a sufficient death and then he rose again in victory. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. This is what we celebrate because this has happened already. But the reason for this not yet is simply that though Jesus came to accomplish a work and reveal to us the character of God and his power over sin and death, we have not yet fully experienced the consequences, the full consequences of that victory. And so now we await his return eagerly. I mean, as we talked about last week, Jesus came the first time as a, a vulnerable child in order that we might be able to approach him. But the next time he comes, he will not come as a vulnerable child. He comes as a warrior king who will once and for all crush all sin, all injustice, all wickedness that still exists and restore the cosmos. I mean, we see this in Revelation 21 where all things are made new, that heaven and earth, all eternity are completely restored to God's uh, initial and uh, intentional uh, intentions for his creation. It's this beautiful picture 
of heaven not being some ethereal distant place, but heaven being a restored creation. This is what we long for. And I note this because in one sense, in Jesus, we have an everlasting father already right now. All the characteristics that we hear about him throughout the scriptures are ours now. But in another sense, we also long to fully experience that one day when he, when he returns. And until that day, we are like those before Christ, hoping, longing for that coming day, which is why every year in the Advent season, we remind ourselves that what we are experiencing now is not all that God intends. He, there is more that we will experience one day, thus producing this longing, but also this hope. Plus, finally, just remember this, that everyone we know, everyone that we know dies. Everyone that we really love and that we've ever trusted will all die. Death will end up taking us all. But Christ is not dead. And this is why we have hope. If Christ was dead, none of this mattered. But in his resurrection power, he proves everything that he claimed about himself is actually true. And so we must remember his eternality. For he owns eternity. He gives us eternity. And though we are currently still subject to the continued brokenness of this sinful uh, world, we have eyes to see. As we trust in Jesus, we'll have eyes to see beyond this broken world, to see God as our everlasting Father, the one who will finally fulfill the longings that we have deep within our souls. And I pray that this is what Advent does for us. It reminds us of these great truths. It reminds us of the character of our King who will return. And so take heart, my friends, this Advent season, and let's remind ourselves of the everlasting God, the everlasting Father that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a Father, a Father that is unlike uh, any Father that any of us have experienced a father who is not without flaws or um, that is without flaws rather and is perfectly loving and compassionate, slow to anger, will never forsake us. And we thank you that Jesus reveals to us the, that character of yourself. And we thank you also for the reminders that we have that he is going to do all that he says that he is going to do. We can be reminded of that because he has resurrected, proven that he is powerful and mighty. And so in this Advent season, as we certainly remember the coming of Jesus, may it also help us to look ahead, with, give us eyes to see his return one day. And may that encourage us in this, in this holiday season, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.